Hello, and welcome to The Goldmine, where you can find new investment insights from your favorite financial writers every day. I'm Barry Ritholtz, and this is My Worst Trades. On a recent appearance on Bloomberg TV, anchor Tom Keene surprised me with this question. What's your best Apple story, he asked. And I told him, in the early 2000s, I managed to snag a loner iPod just before they were released. It was obvious to me that this was a new digital version of the Sony Walkman, the ubiquitous 1980s tape-based portable music player. At the time, Apple shares were trading at about $15 a share with $13 a share in cash on the balance sheet. Hey, this looks like a great risk-reward trade. I pitched Apple to the firm's 800 or so brokers, many of whom bought lots of shares for their clients. But soon after, I was kind of surprised. The shares had worked their way up to $20, and I started to notice sell confirmations by the brokers. Hey, what's going on? Up big, 33%. Gotta ring the bell is what I was told. Ring the bell is broker talk for drop a ticket with a big commission on it. I held on, and when I finally sold, because a stop loss triggered on a pullback, it was after the shares had hit $45, leaving me with a 300% gain. A triple, I smugly told every broker I could find, in what was probably the worst sale I ever made. Look, my career's been filled with lots of bad trades and missed opportunities and judgment errors, but there are a few decisions that stand out not just because of the lost money, and there was lots of lost money, but for the lessons learned. Let me share four examples with you, starting with that Apple trade. Buying Apple at $15 a share sounds cheap, but that was before lots of stock splits went through, which meant that had I held on to Apple through 2020, my post-split cost basis would have been 26.78 cents per share. That was about $2.4 trillion ago in Apple's market capitalization. From this, I learned two important lessons. The first, and obvious one, was avoid running with stop losses that were too tight. I originally had bought this at 15 with a stop at 13 and every time the stock gained $10, I raised my stop loss. So that $15 and $13 stop loss became $23 once the price crossed to $25. Volatility guarantees that such a tight stop loss would eventually get executed. But there is a bigger and more important lesson here. It was how to think long-term. I was behaving like the former trader that I was and not the investor that I had become. I was no longer on a trading desk. I was working with people who supposedly were managing money for the long-term. Trade management is important, but my own trade management did not properly align with either my time horizon or risk tolerances. The good news is they eventually fell into sync, and I started treating investments like investments, not trades. The bad news is it took time, and that was expensive. My second worst trade of all times? Robinhood's 2015 seed round. That's the dumbest investment idea I have ever ever heard. That's what I told Howard Lindzen, who runs a small successful venture fund and has been an early investor in a lot of big tech winners, things like Facebook and Twitter. We were sitting outside the ferry building in San Francisco and Howard was pitching me on putting money into the seed round of Robinhood, a new app that allowed people to trade stocks for free. 
Howard, the world is moving from active to passive, from stock trading to ETFs. Why in the world do I want to own an app that gives trades away for free to young people who have no capital? How are they ever going to generate revenue, let alone profits? I smugly asked. My weak defense? Robinhood was kind of off-brand from how we were investing at Ritholtz Wealth Management, and it was very off-brand for what I was writing at Bloomberg Opinion. And I guess you can make a case Robinhood's current success is arguably due to bored millennials looking for something to do during the pandemic lockdowns. Still, you have to admit, it would have been a fantastic hedge against the passive ETF-based approach to investing. The returns from the seed round have been nothing short of eye-popping. I recently mentioned to Howard, now that Robinhood hit uh, about a $40 billion market cap, wow, I, I really suck, don't I? <laughs> I learned a couple of things from this, and the first was stay in your lane. My expertise is not in the venture space, so really, I should have deferred to the pro. Second, one of my favorite topics, recency bias. You have to be aware of it. I invested with Howard in, an, in a startup uh, a few years earlier, and that investment never found an exit. Maybe it will one day. I still own it. But that sample set of one, that recent venture investment, it kind of colored my view. And, and that probably had an impact on why I passed on Robin Hood. But third, and perhaps the most important of these, you cannot assume that any startup or even a mature company is going to look the same in six months, let alone six years later. Failing to recognize these truisms meant that I left a boatload of money on the table when it comes to Robin Hood. Behavioral insight. You know, when I was pitching Apple to retail brokers for them to buy it for their clients, I couldn't help but notice a lot of people were really certain that the company was doomed. Forget an attempted turnaround. They're toast. Even my mom, who's a former real estate agent and a stock dabbler, sounded like everyone else when she said to me, Apple, they're going out of business. You know, I have to note not only the smugness of the people who were certain Apple was turning around, but my own smugness in both Robinhood and, and the Apple trade. And, and since the, that period, I've taught myself to pay attention to a trading idea that results in a knee-jerk reaction of both disgust and certainty. Why is that? Well, that reaction likely reflects all of the bad news that's already priced in. When everybody tells you a company's going out of business, they're telling you what is already out there. Hey, they've had some bad years and they're behind, but the former founder is back as CEO and he's laid out a whole new product roadmap. The new turnaround is not in the price yet, but all the bad news is. And that's the lesson. Learn to recognize when your emotional reaction is revealing a widespread and very possibly wrong sentiment. And finally, short the market. Short sellers have become an endangered species on Wall Street, and that's too bad. The firm I worked for had a number of shorts heading into the great financial crisis in 2008. We were short AIG, we were short Lehman Brothers, we were short CIT. Before that, we were short some Bear Stearns. But even getting those trades right directionally turned out to be a giant missed opportunity. First, there's a constant threat of a short squeeze and, and that our positions might be called away at any moment. It's kind of funny that to, you're on the right side of the market and yet it's still stressful. If you think it's stressful being long as stocks go down, being short and stocks go down is surprisingly stressful because of the risk of a, a squeeze and the position getting called away. Second, 
These gains failed to offset losses in dollar terms, not percentage terms, of another portfolio manager who had backed up the truck on Wells Fargo against my advice. So there's a lesson to be learned there as well. You know, a firm that has multiple managers and sort of a committee approach, you know, the old joke is a camel is a horse designed by a committee. On the one hand, one group of of managers are short the financials, and then to offset that, this other idiot was long Wells Fargo, despite a compelling case that Wells Fargo was in trouble. By the way, he didn't buy it at like 50. He waited for it to drop, and then he backed up the truck, and then it got cut in half, and he owned a lot of it. And, And that's the next lesson of this. When you have a high conviction trade, you have to own a lot of it. He was dabbling in Wells Fargo. He never should have had that big of a position. And second, our shorts in AIG and Lehman and CIT, these were very high conviction trades. We should have owned a whole lot more of this. And this is not hindsight bias. We debated that in real time as it was going on. I lost that argument. I thought we should have been all in on the short side. You know, I was speaking to Seabreeze Partners' Doug Cass about how disappointed I was that despite timing the trade right and, you know, not quite top-ticking the short, but pretty close to a great entry point on a short side, and it goes all the way down. You know, some of these stocks, AIG lost 100 bucks or so. Uh, You could still only make 100% on your money. That's, That's the challenge for short sellers. All a stock can do is go to zero. So it doesn't matter if you're short at $2 or 2000 If it goes to zero, you've doubled your money. And so Doug Cass made a simple suggestion to me. And, and P.S. Doug is a well-known short seller who's been uh, running a short book for since the, I want to say, late 80s, maybe even before that, mid-80s. Anyway, he had a simple suggestion. Marry a put to your short position. In my mind, instead of investing $100 in a short, maybe investing 120 100 in the equity, 20 in the put option, I think that gives you a whole lot more upside. If you're buying in and out of the money puts, especially something that you think is going to be a disaster, you could pick them up really cheap and the odds are they're going to expire worthless. But if it's an 0809 situation, if it's a hundred year flood, you know, there's hundreds of percents of gains to be had, but you got to get the timing right and the pricing right. And you have to size it and hold it long enough despite all the squeezes. So the lesson from that is you have to have the courage of your conviction. If you really believe in a trade, if you say, this is the best trade I've found in years, it has to be meaningful enough to affect your profits or your losses for that matter. Otherwise, why bother? I shared my Apple experience on Twitter and the reward was all these wonderful examples of other people's terrible trades. There always seems to be much more to learn from failure than success, which leads me to a simple question. What was your worst trade? Hit me up at bridholtz3 at bloomberg.net, and I'll share the best and worst trade stories in a future column. For more from me, check out the big picture at ritholtz.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast. If you're new to investing, check out liftoffinvest.com to get started with us today. Sorry.